Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. And welcome, Seekers, to podcast number 87 of God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by Seekers and for Seekers. I just want to say thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to give us a listen. Uh, we hope we can be a bright spot in your week. And we'd like to remind you that this is a nag-free zone. You won't even be pressured to like or share. And our shout-outs this week are to our anonymous listeners. Um, we give a shout-out every week to those of you who leave your name behind for me to um, talk about and give you a shout out on the air. Right. But there are a lot of ton you of, ton who of people prefer to kind of keep your name to yourself. I underst understand that. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that's totally cool. fine. But we see you guys listening and we are glad to have you on board. Sure. And, and, and that just shows you don't have to identify yourself to listen, yes. to be a listener. Okay. Our quote this week is from Izzy Victoria Odiese. She said, I love keeping an open mind. It's liberating to know the universe and our existence are not limited to my understanding. Right. Oh, I love that. So last week we discussed all of the hate talk and the division going on in our nation over the presidential election that's before us. I think our strongest takeaway is that in spite of all of the efforts of the framers of our Constitution, our nation has become what they most feared. And that is dominated by a two-party political system that governs from the party platform down and not from the people up as our forefathers intended. Sure. And let me make a correction from last week. I'm sure some of you, many of you probably caught it. I'd like to correct a comment I made in last week's episode. Tabitha asked me if a presidential election had ever been decided by the Supreme Court. And I referenced the Gore-Bush election controversy and said that Gore withdrew before the Supreme Court decision. It was preying on my mind that I might have been mistaken, and I was. This is how it played out. The whole controversy was over the state of Florida, where the race was very close. At first vote count, Bush was ahead by almost 3,000 votes. I think it's 2,700-something votes, mm -hmm. which is very close for any state. Uh, when a recount was requested, Bush's lead dropped to just over 300 votes. Whoops. Another recount was requested and was underway when the Bush campaign filed a federal lawsuit to block another recount. 
The Supreme Court voted in Bush's favor to decide the election on the count already in place, basically giving him the electoral votes he needed to win. However, there were questions in other states who used similar ballots and tallying methods. And this is where Gore stepped back and conceded the election without any further recounts in other states. So, so I was wrong when I said that Gore conceded before the Supreme Court ruling that occurred in mid-December only you know, after an early November election. I'm not sure if anyone else picked up on my error, but I'm sure someone will in time. Sorry, when I stop making mistakes, it'll be when I'm dead. <laughs> we'll let you slide this time. <laughs> okay, so in previous episodes, we devoted, we have devoted, you know, quite a bit of time to all of the editing changes and transitions that our English Bible has gone through. It can be a little overwhelming at times, but we still very much relish the Bible sure. as a collection of works that has the divine in it. Those Though those who wrote and contributed to it were divinely inspired, that does not make them divine. No. In other words, they were real people living in a real time with real, uh, sorry, with real religious, social, economic, and political influences, just as we have today. And each of us are divinely inspired from time to time. But it doesn't make every thought we have or every word we speak divine. The divine does speak through humanity. But he does not separate us from our humanity, even when we are divinely inspired. Well said. Well said. And one of the best examples of this is the conflict in the early church between Paul and James. The dispute over faith alone or faith plus works was so evident that one must be put one must put on blinders <laughs> to not see it reflected in their writings. They even quoted the same Old Testament passages and each used it to bolster their interpretation of what it meant. That conflict is still alive and well today because it's found its way into the Bible and so much energy and effort has been spent through the ages to make the whole book a single work and titled it The Holy Word of God. So this is the inspiration for today's episode. The conflicts we the conflicts we have today are over interpretation. So that's what we would like to address. Most every commentary written, and there are thousands, yes. they're written because the scholar did not think the interpretation of another commentator was correct. That's what, and that's what everyone's divided over today is interpretation, and it's over the interpretation. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yes. That yes. we're divided over interpretation. That's yes. what that's what everyone's fighting over is interpretation. When you can have thirty some odd thousand denominations with different beliefs that all use the Bible, as that all use the same places. library of sixty six so it, books, it's got to be over interpretation. Yes, mm-hmm. all doctrines are born of interpretation. Someone sees something in the text that triggers a thought. That thought is an interpretation of what the reader thinks the text is saying. The reader may accumulate other texts that seem to be saying the same thing, and then that person then promotes their interpretation through word of mouth and writing essays and other documents. Often, a base of people who think this is a correct interpretation begins to form, and before we know it, a whole new denomination is born. And that may be oversimplifying it, but it does serve to make the point. It does. So, interpretation is always a matter of trying to figure out what the writer intended to convey to their readers. Let's be honest, even the best writers struggle to convey their thoughts with mere words. This is especially difficult when we're trying to interpret any text that was written in another language, especially an ancient language, and it is then translated to another language. In a sense, 
translation is really a type of interpretation. It is. Mm -hmm. The translator has to first interpret what he thinks the writer was trying to convey. And then he has to find the words in another language that he thinks best convey what he thinks the author meant. Mm -hmm. So the arguments over translation and interpretation are really much the same dispute, but on different intellectual levels. While the linguists and scholars argue over how a word or phrase should be interpreted and translated, the readers are disputing how the translation should be interpreted. The intellectual believes that he or she best serves their cause by authoring yet another translation, while the reader thinks he best serves his or her cause by heaping together translated text to support their own interpretation. The scholarly use lofty language and a lot of big words to make their case, mainly because they're debating and defending their interpretation among others that are on an intellectual plane equal to their own. You know, a lot of us, me, read their scholarly writings and need an interpreter (laughs) to explain what they said. Right. I think those of us with average education and intelligence find it a little frustrating to need a dictionary to interpret the interpretation. (laughs) I got caught up about a year ago in an argument between two pastors on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going through and guys, I'm just going to be completely truthful with you. I had to go and Google like every third or fourth word they would use because I couldn't even pronounce them. Because <laughs> Let alone try and figure out what they it's, meant. It's just like the churches have a language that mm-hmm, we use. Mm-hmm. We have a, you know, Christianese, you call it, that we speak. Yes. Well, the seminaries have languages too. Yes, and yes, they, they all have, the higher you go into the intellect of this, they've got their own language and it actually closes everybody out. So it's then it becomes a debate between the intellectuals or the common people mm-hmm. like us. So it's a really a vicious cycle that's gone on for centuries. And let's not lose sight of our point. The one thing both the language scholar and the general reader have in common is that they are both trying to figure out what the writer was trying to convey to his readers. Then we must add one more layer to the debate. How good was the original writer at utilizing the language he spoke and wrote in? One must ask the question, was the author aware that his personal letter... I'm speaking there of Paul, kind of. Yes. (laughs) ...that he penned would be read and debated centuries later? And we're going to stop and ponder these questions for a minute, and we'll pause and return with part two. And welcome to part two of episode 87 of God Beyond the Bible. We ended segment one with an important point. All the controversy over the Bible through the millennia has been over what we think the original writer was trying to say. And even when it comes to language scholars that understand the original language, uh, how they frame their translation still comes down to their interpretation. Uh, They're debating what they think the writer was trying to say. And I wanted to put something in here that dawned on me while I was reading over this podcast and studying for it. Guys, if you want something to kind of understand what these translators are going through, have one of your friends send you a text message and you're going, was she being sarcastic or funny or was she... Let me go down to this. It's even down to punctuation. Yes. The Hebrew language had no punctuation. Okay. So there's no. I've used this example before. When when Moses uh, asked God, said, "Who shall I say sent me to mm-hmm. Pharaoh? Who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me?" What was his response? 
I am that I am. Yeah. And you put a comma there. There was no comma in that. There's people that interpret that and says, did he mean when you look at a tree? I am that I am. Ooh, or I am that I am. That's it. Yeah, you see what I mean? And yeah. so we think we've got this figured out. And so it's up to the translator to put the commas and all of that stuff in there. So, and remember the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language lacked a lot of what our language, like the filler words mm-hmm. to know to convey the meaning. It was basically, it didn't have any vowels. Because it was primarily it doesn't meant even to have be vowels. a spoken language. Everything right. was meant to be, this is... What's on this page was supposed to be a backup of what you memorized and you know by heart. So you know how all of this goes. So then trying to translate it into another language, you're going, I don't know. I think that was the end of the sentence there. That yeah. felt like and, we're moving and so, on. And so really, you guys understand, don't you? A comma can change the whole. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I watched a little deal one time, a long time ago. Actually, I saw it on Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. And the guy had left some people in charge to run the nuclear power. I think it was Ed Asner was playing as the guy, but he left these people in charge to run the nuclear power this. plant. And he went off and left the nuclear power plant and left them in charge. And he went on vacation and he looked and they're sitting there in the nuclear power plant said, what did he write down? He said, you can never put too much water in a nuclear reactor. And they were arguing and saying, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means you can never put too much water. No, it means never put too much water in a <laughs> nuclear reactor. You can never put. Too, and, they are, and of course, while they're arguing, the plant blows up, <laughs> goes yes. in the belt down, it blows up. So it was. But it just shows you, you see, mm-hmm. even a comma mm-hmm. where you pause changes the meaning. That's right. Through the ages, the religious institution's solution to this never-ending debate is to bring the entire collection of some 40-plus contributors under the title of one single work and give it a title such as God's Holy Word or Holy Bible. This has resulted in another layer of confusion because now we've remo- we have removed the humanity of the writer and we've substituted God as the author. This complicates the whole matter when you read Paul declaring that we are made right with God by faith alone and James writes that faith alone is not sufficient but faith plus works is the right approach. When we elevate both to Devon as though God was doing the writing, we're forced to conclude that both James and Paul were saying the same thing because, after all, God can't be saying two different things. And don't you think that if God were going to sit down with his own hand and write us a book about what he wanted us to believe, he would have been a little bit more clear about all of it? Yeah, he he understood what all the troubles would be. The reality is that both Paul and James used the exact same Old Testament text to present their argument, which means they too were debating their personal interpretation of what the Old Testament writer meant. So this dilemma is not new or unique to our present age. And actually, when um, rabbinical school rabbis, when they're being taught the law and things in Mm -hmm. Jewish culture... You argue interpretation. It's all about interpretation. Mm-hmm. The actual words don't matter. It's what you think the words mean. And that's that what they and that's what they argued with Jesus, as we'll talk about mm-hmm. later. That was their biggest problem with Jesus. They wanted to argue what it meant. Now, I think Jesus probably knew what it really meant. <laughs> but as we pointed out, the Bible text is complicated by the fact that it was written in an ancient language. Uh, that is, generally speaking, unfamiliar, you know, unfamiliar to our modern language. Yeah. We may ask at this point, is this conflict limited to the Bible text? No. The answer is a resounding no. And we don't have to look any further 
than the U.S. Constitution to prove our point. While the Bible is thousands of years old and written in a foreign language that is complicated even for the most scholarly, our U.S. Constitution should be much less complicated and controversial. By comparison, it is merely a couple hundred years old and written in English. It's a wonderful, well-thought-out document whose writer's intent was not debated much, mainly because they were still alive to explain the intent of the document, right? Wrong. 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 The truth is, there was debate from the get-go. Less than two decades after its birth, James Madison sought to clarify the intent of the Constitution by basically rewriting it with the clarifications included, and it caused an uproar. The Federalists who believed in a strong federal government and the anti-federalists who believed the role of the federal government should be very limited and the real power should be left to the individual states quickly went to battle. In short, it was decided that Madison's changes to clarify the intent would actually be adopted as amendments to the Constitution and thus we have the first 10 amendments that we know as the Bill of Rights. Okay, so we have the first 10, ten Amendments that we know as the Bill of Rights, so conflict averted, right? No. <laughs> Wrong again. Now we have these 10 Amendments that have made the intent of the original writers plain and clear, so there should be no debate on the interpretation. Wrong again. The debate began almost immediately and still rages today. And like the Bible, the more time that elapses, the more points of conflict. Uh, we're still debating First Amendment rights recognized under the modern title of freedom of speech. So it is with the Second Amendment. We call it the right to bear, to keep and bear arms. Uh, the third is not debated much since it was about the person's individual right to choose whether or not to house soldiers in their private homes in times of peace and war. The fourth is still in conflict. We know it as protection from illegal search and seizure of a citizen's personal property. The fifth speaks to the rights of a citizen accused of a crime that they may not be forced to testify or otherwise incriminate themselves, and it also prohibits double jeopardy. The sixth guarantees a fair and speedy trial, and the list goes on and on. By denying the alteration of the Constitution and allowing amendments to be added, the Founding Fathers seem to have averted one conflict but opened the door for many more. Just a little point of trivia. Does anybody know how many constitutional amendments there are today? Did anybody know? I do because I read it. Oh. Yeah, I I didn't know for sure. I didn't either until I researched it. But it it was 27. 27 amendments. Yeah, started with 10 and now we have 27. So if you think about it, we approach the Constitution with much of the same mindset as we do the Bible. We often elevate those men who frame the Constitution to a somewhat divine status And many have given their very lives to defend their interpretation of the intent of the original writers. To keep our point in mind, we're comparing the U.S. Constitution to the Bible when it comes to the power of interpretation. And hold right there. Let me just say, that's all lawyers do. That's all an attorney does is interpreting Mm -hmm. the law. That's what it is. And that's why they fight and argue and whoever gives the most believable interpretation That's right. And that's what the Pharisees did, too. Exactly. (laughs) So if we can't agree on what the framers of the Constitution meant to convey to us, and it was written in English just over 250 years ago, is there any wonder why there's so much debate over interpreting the text of the Bible that was written in ancient languages a few thousand years ago? Right. Now, keep in mind that the debate over the wording and intent of the Constitution began almost immediately following its adoption. 
while the writers were still alive to explain their intended message. We have evidence that the same was true of the writers who contributed to the text we call the Bible. The conflict over interpretation couldn't be more evident than in the case of faith alone and faith plus works between Paul and James. So please don't go away. We've set a good platform here, and we're going to pause for a moment and return with part three. Okay, we feel that we've laid enough groundwork in part one and two by comparing the conflict over interpretation of the Bible with that of the Constitution. And it may leave us thinking that there's no way out of this vicious circle of division and conflict. But we believe there is and that Jesus gave us the answer. We just don't acknowledge, utilize, or apply it. But before we reveal what we think the answer is, let's set the stage for Jesus' answer to the problem. So in Jesus' day, the dominant religion pertaining to the Bible was that of the Jews. They had the law, Mm -hmm. and it was referred to as Moses' law. It was much more than the mere Ten Commandments. It actually consisted of more than 600 written laws, and they had lawyers whose assumed responsibility was to interpret the intent of the law. Does that kind of sound familiar to our last segment uh there? They also had means of enforcing their interpretation of the law, even to the extent of execution, you know, stoning. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jesus' greatest recorded public conflicts, conflicts were with this group of people who viewed the law applying to their religious activities much in the same way we as Americans viewed the constitutional law as pertaining to its citizens. Jesus knew the law, but much more, he knew the intended interpretation of the law from his divine origin. We also knew, uh, he also knew that the lawyers who represented the law of Moses had all but lost the original intent of the law to their own interpretation. This was evident when they challenged Jesus on points like ceremonial washing of their hands and healing on the Sabbath, and that's just to name a couple. Mm-hmm. Jesus knew that this approach to humanity, having a relationship with the Father, not only disenfranchised the masses, but it made a personal relationship with the Creator almost impossible. In short, they substituted the law for a personal relationship, much as people do with the Bible today. The problem was not so much in the intent of the law itself as it was with those who interpreted it. Jesus accused them of manipulating the interpretation of the law to satisfy their own selfish ambitions. And you can actually, I found it interesting, you can actually find that same line um, all the way through the Old Testament in the stories of God going, guys... I don't care about the law. Mm-hmm. I want to know you, and I want what, you to know me. What about the first chapter of Isaiah where he just blasted them? Isaiah blasted them in speaking for God. He mm-hmm. said, I hate what you're doing. Yeah. I yes. hate your ceremonies. I despise your 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 ties and your gifts and your sacrifice. Yeah. That I, they stink to me. You know, I mean, can't get much clearer than that. These are the only people Jesus ever publicly debated and criticized. The lawyers. Mm -hmm. And if we go back and look at the encounters that Jesus had with the lawyers of his day, with this in mind, it becomes clear that it was a debate over interpretation. They tried constantly to get Jesus to say something that they could interpret as breaking the law by their interpretation of what it meant. 
Jesus always managed to reveal the flaws in their interpretation, but it did not change their position. Just like people that fight over the Bible today. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's exactly where we are today concerning the Bible. We are in conflict over interpretation. One person reads a passage and interprets it to mean one thing. Another interprets it to mean another. Just like conflicts of this sort always do, it devolves. I'm not sure if that's a word or not. Into the, it devolves into the conflict becoming personal and nasty, attacking the character of and demonizing those who question our interpretation. We then split into groups who share and support a particular interpretation. You know, this is a good place to point out that there are two ways to interpret Bible text. In scholarly circles, it's called eisegesis and exegesis. I'm so glad you got that one. <laughs> they are great. And, and she's not saying Jesus. She's saying Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. G-E-S-I-S on the end. <laughs> they are Greek words that are defined as follows. Isogesis means to read into and exegesis means to read out of. The argument is that when we apply an isogesis approach, we already have in mind the interpretation we think the text is saying. Therefore, we read that interpretation into the text. All right. And then the, let's try that again. In the exogesis approach, they claim that it reads what the text says and forms our interpretation out of the text. And while this seems like it should be the right approach, the problem still remains that both are trying to interpret the intent of the writer of the text in question. So even among those in the exogesis community, they still accuse those who disagree with their interpretation of being victims of isogesis or reading their preconceived interpretation into the text. And I don't want to be too, I don't want to get too specific, but I just talked to a linguist, a scholar, uh, linguished mm-hmm. and his his is in Hebrew and Greek and uh, while I was talking to him he was talking about you know that, that we've got a bunch of the interpret you know got a bunch of the he's, he's he's working on his own I guess a commentary or a translation of the Bible himself and and you know that's that's cool that's mm-hmm. good that's what he feels led to do but then he told me he said let me show you what I believe and he told me to go to a place and looked at what his doctrine was and I'm thinking now wait a minute if you've got a doctrine that you adhere, adhere to, isn't that going to influence the way you? You would well, think. it is. And, and I mean, isn't that going to influence? Yeah. Aren't you actually guilty of isogesis, even though he claims he's an exogesis uh, linguist? Yeah. Isn't that? Aren't you going to read if you're saying this is what I believe? Go look and see what I believe, and it's a doctrine, and then you're gonna you're gonna read that doctrine into the mm-hmm. into I, the words. I do not think that it is humanly possible for us to read anything completely unbiased. That's what I was wondering. I mean, it would be really hard to yes. yeah, because you are always going to have your background, your beliefs, your life's history, your socioeconomic. Yes, religious background, whatever it is. No matter how much you try to go, I'm just going to look at this completely open minded. There are always going to be that thing, those things where you're going, that doesn't really apply (laughs) to me. I mean, it's just, it's who we are as humans. So how did Jesus solve this conflict of interpretation? And if he did, why are people still fighting over the interpretation of the text? (laughs) Well, it's very simple. The divine plan implemented an element that would eliminate the need for a text or an interpretation. It was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we block our ears to this concept that blows away the need for anything to be written down for future generations to live by, let's read what Jesus said about this divine plan to eliminate the conflict. 
John is the only writer that records Jesus' answer to the problem of interpreting the intent of what another person writes. It's found in John chapter 14. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples that he would not leave them without hope or comfort when he ascended, but would send them a comforter that would not be external, but would be internal. Listen to the promise of what the internalizing of the Holy Spirit would do. John 14, 26 records Jesus' statement, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. What things? <laughs> all things. <laughs> For those who may argue that the promise in John 14 only applied to the 11 disciples who were present when Jesus made this promise, we only need to read what John later wrote in his letter. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, John wrote to his audience of believers concerning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which had now already taken place with the following words. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, abideth in you, and ye need... And ye need not that any man teach you, but it's, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it is taught you, ye shall abide in him. Let's clear that up a little bit. Please. In the New Living Translation, reads it like this. John writes, But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what He teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as He taught you, remain in Christ. Now, could that be any clearer? I mean, we've read two passages where it says, you'll have no need to be taught. And then it goes on and says, you'll have no need for anyone to teach you. It seems pretty clear to us that Jesus knew the problem of interpretation when it comes to trying to decipher the intent of the writer when something is written down and preserved. He said the Father implemented a plan to end the conflict over words written or spoken. It is an internal teacher and guide. It is the Holy Spirit. John was encouraging his readers to utilize it in a manner that eliminated the need for some external source to tell you what the Most High wanted to convey to us. Yet we seem to still turn back to this broken system of waiting for intellectuals to tell us what God wants us to know. Did he really mean we wouldn't need to be arguing over what a human being said or wrote because we would not need anyone to teach us? We would just know? Mm -hmm. Do you think that this modern religious... Do you think that these modern religious organizations are comfortable with this arrangement <laughs> that Jesus implemented? They weren't, they weren't mm -hmm. even comfortable with it then. No. So is there a way to identify and trust that voice? Have we become so accustomed to being told what God wants us to know that we've ignored the internal guidance system designed to eliminate the need? Well, we hope you'll join us next time as we dive further into this divine plan that was intended to eliminate all the conflict and confusion of so many voices screaming at us to follow their brand based on their interpretation. Until then, may God's unconditional grace, peace, and love be in, on, and radiate out from each of you, our fellow seekers, from all of us here at God Beyond the Bible. Did you enjoy listening to God Beyond the Bible? Do you have an idea for an episode? Connect with us today. 
visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com, all one word, or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com, or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.